you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to be continuing through Acts, and we're going to pick up in verse or chapter 23. Uh, thank you for the opportunity uh, Amy and I had to get away last week. We had a little vacation together and introduced ourselves to one another. She seems to be a really nice lady, and um, so thank you for that. It was uh, much needed, and it's good to be back with you today in this beautiful Michigan weather. Let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 23. Paul, who's been beaten, unfairly treated, for just trying to do the best that he can possibly do in a city that he longs to see salvation be brought to, Jerusalem, And now he stands before some makeshift quasi-Sanhedrin meeting that was rushed and put together because the Romans didn't want to have to deal with him because they found out he was a citizen and they they had bound them and broke Roman law and they could be in big trouble. So they kicked the can back over to Israel in the Sanhedrin and say, you deal with this. And that's where we find Paul. Paul, through his black eyes, swollen cheeks, broken ribs, and torn LCU. Is that, is that a tendon, Dave? Nope? Okay, but you know what I'm trying to say, all right? He's beaten and battered. Dave, give me something smart to say. ACL? American Civil Legion? ACL, that's different. I'm going to stick to theology where I excel. Not no, Paul, looking intently at the council in this state, says, Brother and I have lived my life with perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Now that makes me think, what's he about to do up to this day? Is he about to just, let's move forward. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike Paul in the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit and try me according to the law. And in violation of the law, yourself order me to be struck. But the bystanders, they just gasped. Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware. Brother, in that He was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of the high priest. You shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, Paul began crying out to the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees who do not agree on the resurrection, and the assembly was quickly divided in the Sanhedrin council. For the Sadducees says there is no resurrection, nor that the angel nor the spirits, but Pharisees acknowledged them all, and there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and began to argue heatedly saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel did speak to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn into pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away by force and bring him into the barracks. My friends, this is the first recording of a Baptist business meeting here in the Word of God. But on the night immediately following that, The Lord stood at his side and he said, Take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, you will be my witness in Rome. Let's ask God's blessing and we'll unpack this together.
Gracious Father, come before you with one simple request. Bless your word. Bless your word. May we leave here blessed by your word. Who is Christ incarnate? Who has become flesh and has dwelt among us? Bless your word. And Father, I pray this, and I ask this, in your Son's precious name. And if you agree with that request, say amen. amen. Have you ever just blown it? I'll give you time to marinate on that. Just think about all the times you've blown it. Some of us are going, I don't quite recall a time when I've blown it. And if I did, it was someone else who started that ball rolling. Have you ever just blown it? Whether it's in your marriage relationship or with friends or co-workers or maybe you've blown it with your children or here's something that rarely ever happens, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. Have you ever blown it with the people you go to church with? Okay. Today, we're going to look at a moment where Paul just blows it. He is frustrated. Everything has, he has hoped for, that he wanted to be, isn't happening. Listen to this list here. He came to Jerusalem with a love offering to a struggling Hebrew church, and it was not received as well as he had hoped it would be. Then he got involved in some sort of scheme to look like a law-keeping Jew in order to keep the peace in a divided church, resulted in being attacked by the very people he was trying to bring unity, getting the snot, yes, I said snot, snot beaten out of him. He then gets arrested, interrogated, has his civil rights violated, and now finds himself in front of a Jewish Sanhedrin, again being accused of the same things. This is the scene. This is the heart. This is the emotional state of Paul as he stands in front of some quick quasi-makeshift court meeting of the Sanhedrin, having, having his heart and his intentions and really his body being assaulted. And let us not forget that all of this is happening as his face is still swelling up. Bruises are beginning to show after being, being beaten to an inch of his life. That is where we come into this first five verses. With that in mind, grab this. That's, the context is king. Context is king. With that feeling in mind, how many here have ever been beaten up to where the next several days of your lives were just miserable? Wow, what a bunch of softies, all right? You ought to get into ministry. I'm thinking, oh, we got one right over there. I don't, we'll get your story later. How many here have just walked more flights of stairs than you're used to and the next day is miserable? Anyone at all? This is, this isn't Paul's state. He's like, oh, my ACLs hurt, all right? He's, he's beaten. With that in mind, look at this. Now, looking intently at the council. How many here would also be looking intently at the council? Anyone at all? I would. I bet he was looking at them intently. 
Have you ever been so at, at your ropes in that you, that your stare says everything that you're thinking? I too would be looking intently at the court. After all, Paul knows most of them by name. He's lived with them. He's served with them. He's been a guest in many of their homes. In fact, Paul at one time likely served on the same court of the Sanhedrin with these people. They are his, and this is a Greek word, his peeps, all right? He knows them. And they just beat him up. Now the two words looking intently here is one word in the Greek. It means to fix or stare through someone. To fix or stare through someone intently. How many here have ever had someone stare right through you? Anyone at all? How many here have ever been the one dishing the stare? Anyone else? My father, Vietnam vet. Man, he didn't have to say a word for me. I just had to be acting up a little bit. And he would just look at me like this. And I knew I was a dead man walking. Stared right through them. The context is even further made clear by how Paul dresses them. And Paul says, brethren. Now, at first glance... We look at this on a surface read. It seems tender almost, doesn't it? My brothers, my, my brethren. And it would be tender if he was addressing a crowd of average Joes in the temple courts like he was the, the chapter before when he said fathers and brothers. But he's not standing in front of average Joes, is he? He's not standing in front of a, a general crowd of people. He is standing and addressing the supreme court of Israel. Now, imagine if I did that in Grand Rapids today. Imagine I had to get up in front of the judge, and I looked at the judge, and I said, my brother, my sister. Don't normally say it like that. Or my peeps, or my man, or girlfriend. How would that go for me? Talk to me. Not very well. It doesn't go very well here either. doesn't go very well here. You see, normally, it is, it is within this culture... All right. In antiquity, it was customary to address the authoritative body by calling them rulers and elders. Rulers and elders. In fact, you'll see that in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Paul calls them brethren because he sees himself as their equal. You are me, I am you. I am just like you. That brings up two weeks ago. And he knows them personally, which, by the way, does not sit well with them right now because they are not pleased with him. And he begins to address them as if he, he needs to correct the, the record here. And so with staring at them intently, calling them brethren, he says, I have lived my life with entirely good conscience before God up to this day. Now some of you may say, how in the world could Paul say that? How in the world could he say that, especially if you consider his early years when he persecuted not only men, but women, threw them in jail. Uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking? Tortured's not the right uh, Beat them and, and punished them and persecuted, thank you, them. He was the one who, who sanctioned the killing of Stephen and much more that the Bible doesn't even tell us about. There's a lot more that we don't know. Paul was a man of much failure. Paul was a man of much hatred and much sin in his life. How in the world can he say, I stand here with a clear conscience? In fact, a few years from now, even after this, Paul's going to write a letter called 1 Timothy to Pastor Timothy where he will say, I am the worst sinner of all. 
My humble observation is, is of this answer is found in the words, to this day, to this day, as I stand right now, my conscience is clear. My, my testimony is clear. My conscience is clear. Marshall, one theologian, touches on this, and he says this. Paul means that his conscience and testimony is clear of any blame with regard to the conduct of his life as a Christian, as a Christian, to this day as a Christian. Also, let's keep in mind that Paul here is about to blow it in a moment as a Christian. And that's going to be huge to our unpacking of this text, where he will even apologize for his actions. So how can he say, I have a good conscience, I have a good testimony, a good standing before God? Church, I want us to listen in here. And as children of God who happen to attend a Baptist church, because we are not Baptists, we are followers of Christ. Amen? That is what we are primarily, but as we attend this church, I want us to hear this. A good testimony in Christ will include both spiritual successes and speedy confessions of failures. Now grab that. Successes and failures. A good testimony, a good conscience is not about controlling our image that we want people to see. We are often raised in a septic, unbiblical culture that says, my testimony is defined by what people think and see. My testimony is defined by what people see. Amy and I were raised in a culture like this, and this kind of culture really eliminates a relationship with Christ. It elevates public opinion. This kind of mentality has not only created a breeding ground of hypocrisy, but also a dark place where the heart values reputation over holiness. In fact, it creates, and Paul's going to bring up this word here, whitewashed walls in our lives rather than authentic testimonies. Paul actually brings this up with a, this kind of follower of God looks like. He says to them that such a heart is like a whitewashed wall. Now, this is very similar to the words that, that Christ used when he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. But there is a distinction in it. Paul used similar language, but with some unique distinctions. In fact, he is drawing from Ezekiel chapter 13, where it actually uses the imagery of painting a flimsy, weak wall to paint it white in order to give it the illusion of strength, in order to give it the illusion of quality that it does not have. Imagine it's a, it's a, it's a warped piece of, 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 of press board that, that is, that is crumbling and it's been out in the weather and it can, you would never want to put your weight on it. But what we do is we just paint it white so that from a distance people can think that there's strength in it. One of my favorite memories of Amy recently, and I got her permission to share this with, with you. One of my favorite um, memories of Amy recently in church is when someone was walking by and they looked at my wife and they said, how's your day going? And she goes, may I have permission just to, just to be real and authentic with you for a moment? Can I get permission? All those in favor say, I. Those who will judge say, yay. Oh, who was it? That's all right. That's all right. How was your day? And Amy just goes, it sucks. That's what it is. You know, it's just, and she goes, but I'm trying to make the best out of it. Oh, she never looked more beautiful in her life. She says, it stinks and I'm doing the best I can. And I was like, you go, baby. Tell them 
about our fight last week and how you were way out of line. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. If the number one concern of our life is always what will people think, we are chasing false sanctification. We are chasing false sanctification. A good conscience, a good testimony will include spiritual successes, yes, so that people may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Absolutely. But it also will include speedy confessions of our failures in reconciliation. You ever notice God's word does not touch up the depictions of all the people we read about in their life? In fact, you ever notice that God goes to some, some, some unique uh, reaches to make sure that he tars and feathers the characters of everyone we read about that? Have you ever noticed that? When David was engaged in adultery and murder, it was not whitewashed. We were told about it. When, when Jonah pouted and got angry, we're told about it. When Peter got violent, we're told about it. The Holy Spirit never said, what are people going to think when they read this? Why do we worry about it so much? May I offer a possibility? The pride of life. The pride of life. We often hide our ungodly pride behind white walls of good testimony. What made these biblical saints good testimonies was not their perfection, but their repentance and pursuit of God. We're going to see this in Paul in a moment. Let me say that again. What made them good testimonies was not their perfection, because none of us are going to get there. Can I get a witness on that? I want to tell you, I'm not nowhere near that. Boy, even in my sentence, I'm not perfect. But our repentance and pursuit of God. Now, I'm not saying that every failure should be advertised. I'm not saying we should run things up the flagpole every time we fail. Some failures require privacy. In fact, did you know that privacy and discernment is built into Matthew 18? The goal is to go, when, when a brother fails or when you fail or whatever the case may be, you, you, one person goes and we seek to, 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 to take care of that privately. And if it doesn't work, it goes up the, the ladder from there. But here's the point. Some fears, failures require privacy. So what is the balance? What is the balance here? Here it is. Every sin should find accountability to the extent that spiritual health is assured. Every sin that we have should find accountability to the extent that spiritual health is assured. But a Facebook life, a closely edited life that gives the appearance of perfection in order to maintain public perception is not what a good conscience or testimony is about. Pursuing God and confessing our sins when we fail, that is a good testimony of the gospel of His grace. And by the way, that is why we, that is how we are to have a good conscience before Him in the midst of our imperfections. And so let's look at one of Paul's imperfections here. It says this, and the high priest, after Paul calls them brethren and stares straight through them and says, I've done nothing wrong in the eyes of God. The high priest commanded those standing next to him, hit him in the mouth. Paul's staring at them, calling equals, his familiarity, his equating a good conscience before God is just too much. And they strike him. And here's where Paul blows it. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do not sit and try me according to the law, in violation of the law. Order me to be struck. Now, here's where Paul's anger gets the best of him. Now, I want to be clear here. I want to be clear here because there's an 
absolutely amazing application that we need, especially in our culture today. I want to be clear. It was against the Mosaic law to strike Paul before he had his trial and judgment. It was against the law to strike him, the Mosaic law. Leviticus 19, Sanhedrin 3. Paul had been unfairly treated for days now, has he not? He's got a a torn ACLU. He's been, he's been hurt. He's been wronged. Then they hit him. How many here have just said, that's it, final straw, I'm done? Anyone at all? They have it coming. My sin is because of their sin. Therefore, my sin has been blotted out. He's just had it. They were wrong, by the way. I want you to see that clearly. But here it is. Their wrong does not excuse his their wrong is not an excuse for his. But those present said, are, are you insulting God's high priest? To insult the high priest is also against the law of Moses. Exodus 22 forbids a Jew to slander the high priest. Deuteronomy chapter 17 tells us that the high priest occupied God's ordained position of authority in Israel. To slander the office is to slander God. To slander the office is to slander God. Paul immediately knew what he had done was wrong. And he immediately submitted to scripture and repented of it. Again, we see here that a good testimony is not in a picture of perfection, but a pursuit of God. So quick was he to confess that he even quoted Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, when he repented. We see it right here. He just blurps it out. You shall not speak evil, the ruler of your people. He acknowledges he was wrong. Now, were they wrong? Uh, class, church, my friends, my family, was the Sanhedrin the way they treated Paul? Were they wrong? Were they in sin? What's the answer? But notice that didn't excuse his. Paul was quick to apologize even when he had some very reasonable excuses for doing so. He had all the reason to say, I I know I did wrong, but can we examine why I'm wrong and it's you? He says, I was not aware, brothers, that this is the high priest. Now, this brings an exegetical and hermeneutical conundrum. I couldn't even spell that if I tried. Now the question rises, how is it possible that Paul, a Pharisee, a Pharisee that's so familiar with the court and the Old Old Testament law of Moses doesn't recognize the person who holds the highest place? I didn't know you were Joe Biden. Even more, I didn't know you were Donald Trump. What? Look at the... (laughs) Sorry, I don't know where that came from. Back there scrambling in the notes back there. Where is he at? Four reasons are possible. Four reasons why Paul could say this. One, Paul may have had poor eyesight. Galatians 6.11 speaks to this when he has to write really big. Number two, this is not an official meeting. And the high priest was not wearing his official robes. It was likely just kind of a quick makeshift meeting. Three, Paul has been gone for many years in Asia and setting up Gentile churches. And Ananias, the high priest came into office around 47 when Paul was out in the Gentile nations, which, by the way, this is not a very popular high priest because there's going to be a Jewish revolt around 66 AD, and the Jews are going to kill their own high priest. They're going to kill him. A little history class for you. How many here love history? How many here like, my life just got better knowing that? By the way, it could be that Paul was angry, and in an ironic, sarcastic manner, 
says this because Ananias isn't acting like a high priest. I didn't know he was a high priest. He's not acting like it. Scholars debate this. It was a fun read. <laughs> Scholars debate this and even argue amongst themselves. How, if you ever want to see what near a coma looks like, come read with me on Monday mornings. They debate and they, and they argue this. Uh, one is more likely than the other and some are invalid. And in my meager thoughts as I was reading this, I, I, I thought to myself, I'm not sure there needs to be a debate about these four things. Couldn't it be all of the above at the same time? Why is it always got to be, why is it always right or left? There's no middle. All right? Why can't it be all of them in a hastily held meeting where the high priest did not have his official robes on? Paul, with his poor eyesight, being gone for a long time, ironically and sarcastically responds because the high priest doesn't act like it. That seems to fit my boat. In fact, I declare all the others are wrong and I am right. Whatever the case, whether all or some, that's really not the point. Paul knows that his actions were wrong. Paul knows in the midst of all of this, no matter how wrong they are, his wrong is his responsibility. He admitted his error. He took responsibility, he corrected his actions. I want you to see this good testimony. Paul could have excused his actions a thousand times over. He could have excused them a thousand times over. After all, look what they've done to him. He could have attributed the fact that he has been beaten, he has been ill-treated, he's, he's been unfairly, and his, his rights and everything is out of order and so on. Yet, grab this, this is huge. Here we go. He saw his sin in relation to a holy God. He saw his sin in relation to a holy God, not in relation to how others acted around him. That's how we evaluate ourselves. Yeah, I know what I did is wrong, but look at over here. It doesn't matter over here. It matters up there. In relation to a holy God... He realized his sin. He submitted to Scripture. Here's the major point. When we blow it, we should be quick to admit our sin and correct it. Not dig in and convince ourselves that our behavior is is defensible because how others have treated us around us. You ever notice that when we fail, it is first because others have failed us? You ever notice that? Anyone? As a pastor, I've never experienced this. Not only have I been on the receiving side of this, I've been on the giving side of this. That when we fail, it is because others have failed us. I'm sorry I did this, but look what you've done to me. We call this digging in. It is American virtue never to admit you're wrong. You ever watch politicians stammer when they're like, if you could have done one thing differently over the last four years, one thing differently. What mistake did you make? And they're like, you can see smoke rolling out of their ears, you know. I, I, I wouldn't have done anything differently. Really? You're not human? It's an American virtue never to admit we're wrong. And when we are wrong, we point to others for the reason for being wrong. Let us not exercise. 
Let us not excuse our sin by highlighting others. Let us deal with our sin because of who God is and our love for him. The goal of a good testimony is not to maintain what everyone thinks about us, but rather to stand right before Christ. Friends, a good testimony is when you confess your sins, make things right with God and others. People will get the message. You know know what? We are not near perfect, but we're trying to walk with God. We're trying to follow him. There is no better testimony than that. Like Paul, and I love this quote, growth in Christ will create fast repenters, not fake pretenders. People don't want to be around someone who is perfect, amen? Or someone who feigns perfection. They long to be around a real person who is trying to seek God in the midst of a messy life. How many here with an amen? I'm asking you to participate here. You can vote on this, all right? How many here um, with an amen will attest? There are times in your life when your life is just one giant hot mess. If your life has ever been a hot mess, say amen. Amen. I, I have a hot mess life. Paul's conscience is clear before God, not because of what others think, not because he is perfect, but because he is open and confessing and restoring when he fails. Trinity, let that be our testimony. Not whitewashed of perceived perfection. My friends, there's a lot to unpack in this next part. But Paul's hopes and dreams just keep going down the drain. That's what I want you to see here. Seeing his own people come to Christ is falling apart. The church is separated. His love offering not received well. The scheme to look like a law-keeping Jew backfired, which caused him to be attacked and beaten and arrested by Romans. Where he then loses his cool and blows it in front of the Sanhedrin meeting, causing nothing more than a great uproar that started a heated argument. So much that the pagans had to look at this and break up God's chosen people because they are afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. And I'm sure they did it with perfect Robert's Rules of Orders, which makes it okay. And now instead of spending time with loved ones and getting ready to go to Rome and share the gospel, he finds himself chained in the barracks. Paul's life is just one big giant Murphy's Law right now. Where if anything could go wrong, it has gone wrong. Now, many of us will not know this level of mess. Many of us will not know this level of mess. But we do know what this feels like. We do know this emotional state where it seems that everything you touch is falling apart. Everything you hoped for and touched and longed for is falling apart. And like Paul, everything you hoped you would ever have in life lay in ashes at your feet. Yet look what happens. In the midst of all this mess and failure, in the midst of all this mess and failure, some of which is Paul's own fault, by the way, grab this, the Lord stood near. Now, this is, I want to encourage you with this. This is huge. The Lord stood near. Our failures, your failures, my failures have nothing to do with God's presence in our lives. Amen? How many are thankful for that? 
Jesus never leaves. He never forsakes. Even when your life is one giant hot mess, he's there. Now the Lord stood near him. This is interesting because this is a Christophany. This is a Christophany. A manifestation of Jesus in the Bible that is tangible to the human senses. Now why do I tell you this? Because it's going to make this pop. It's time for God's word to be living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Not a textbook we underline as we check the box off our culture and head back to a life that looks nothing like Christ. The reason I tell you about a Christophany is because I want you to get yourself in the jail cell. I want you to get inside of Paul's skin. His torn ACLU, his bruised eye, his broken ribs, his his swelling face, his hopes and dreams are gone. You may not be in a cell right now physically, but many of you in this room I know emotionally and spiritually are there. There is no hope. There is no tomorrow. Where is God? Oh, I love this. Get yourself in this. Jesus physically, after he resurrected from the dead, which by the way, did you know one of Jesus? I have a shirt. I wore it on vacation and people were like, I love that shirt. I'm like, it's the Bible. All right. Um, and it, it's the first words of Jesus when he rose from the dead and, and, he, and he came to his disciples and he comes through the door and they're like, it's a ghost. You know what Jesus says? Is there any food here to eat? I wore it to the buffet every day. Christophany. Jesus in his physically glorified body stands before Paul in a place of no hope. You may be in a place in your marriage, in your life, at your work, in your home, in your family, or how about we just get real, in our walk with Christ. Where it seems like everything we thought Christianity in our lives and our marriage and our, our, our family and our relationships would be is just gone. It's dead. And Jesus physically in his glorified body stands before Paul. Now look him in the eye. Look Paul in the eye. I don't want you just to, to read this text. I don't want you to just hear this text. I want you to feel this text. Jesus, picture Jesus in all of his holy character, in all of his tenderness, in all of his love, in all of his truth, the word incarnate. Tenderly stands before Paul physically. And I want you to see Paul's eyes and I want you to see Jesus' eyes when countless words are exchanged in the silence of that solitary moment and Jesus just utters one word. One word. He who is the word incarnate has one word for Paul here to begin with. One word in a Greek that takes two in the English. Can you see it? In the jail with everything that could be wrong, being wrong. Jesus stands next to Paul and he looks him in the eye and he says the word, Tharse. Be strong. Be courageous. It's in the positive form. It means this, stay the course. Don't quit. I'm not done. My plan for your life has not shifted one shadow. 
And in your barren, lonely, hopeless cell, his plan has not shifted. Did you know that this word, I'm on my last page, and we'll call it a day. This page may take me an hour, but I don't care. And now that I'm losing my sight and getting older, I'm going to bring it with me so I remember what to say. Did you know that this word is used five times in the New Testament? Only five times, and every time it's used, only Jesus uses it. Every time it is Jesus speaking to those, by the way, that are overwhelmed with their circumstances. Every time, it's like Jesus' word. You ever been around someone, you ask them how they're doing, they say the same thing. This is Jesus' word. You sound like Jesus when you use this word. Every time Jesus is speaking to those overwhelmed by the mess that is their life, people with no hope, the paralyzed man, be strong. The hemorrhaging woman, be strong. His disciples on a stormy sea, we're going to die. Jesus says, Tharse, I am the same God in the storm as I am on the shoreline, Tharse. In the upper room when the world was crushing down on the twelve disciples, Tharse, and now to Paul in a hopeless place, Tharse. This is Christ's unique word for all that are trying, imperfectly as it may be, to seek him and know him. In the midst of personal failure, in the storms of life we cannot control, no matter how weak you are, no matter how weak I am, no matter how weak our hearts are, Jesus never leaves, he never forsakes. And the same word he has for them, and for him, is the same word he has for you today. Be strong. I'm right here. Your failure has nothing to do with my faithfulness. In fact, in John 6.33, in the world you will have tribulation, though so far say, I have overcome the cosmos, the world. Where's my hallelujah corner? Right over here, all right. Linda. You and I can say a thousand words by just looking at each other. You know, as a pastor's wife, for how many years were you a pastor's wife? Don't start crying now, you're going to make me cry. How many years were you a pastor's wife? Uh, 29. 29? You quit at 29? <laughs> I had to. <laughs> You've been through deep waters. You know that jail cell. You know what it's like. As do I. As do you. I got one word for you, and it's from Jesus. Be courageous. Farce. Okay. Thank you. Your past doesn't have to be your future. Your now is not your forever. Earth is short and heaven is long. Can I get a hallelujah? Can I, can I get a farce? When you're going through the week and you don't love the man in front of you, farce. 
When you're, when you're going with raising your children and they're driving you nuts, farsay. When your relationships are falling apart and your hopes and dreams are in ashes, say. Earth is short. Heaven is long. Hang in there. You are His child and you belong to Him. Now be a quick repenter. Notice that in Paul's failure and mess, Christ is present encouraging him. Not because everyone thinks Paul is perfect or because Paul, uh, but because Paul in his failure confesses, repents, pursues Christ. That is a testimony of a clear conscience before Christ and what it's all about. My friends, let us hear this today. The time has come for conservative churches, including the trappings that we have in our own, to abandon the false ideal that a good testimony is found in a squeaky clean image, but rather a good testimony is found in a sinner quickly confessing and pursuing Christ with all of his heart that's a good testimony oh and one last thing Paul could not be further from where he wanted to be and do he wanted to share the gospel with Jerusalem and Rome and now he sits in jail having just blown it look at what Jesus says and does here you are testifying to the truth of me in Jerusalem and you will testify in Rome also Jesus says I'm not done with you just because you blew it and just because it's not going the way you want doesn't mean you're done being used. And here's the wonderful truth in this, and we'll close in this. The truth of the matter is this. Most of the characters of God's Word are often those who blow it the most. Throw a dart. Save Jesus Christ. Throw a dart. They blow it. Even when there's two of them in garden of perfection blow it leading people in the wilderness blow it Peter swinging a sword Jesus saying get behind me Satan it's what our gift is most of the characters of God's word are often those who blow it the most that ought to brighten our day by the way And then I want to end with this. From all extensive purposes, it looks like Paul's ministry and possibly his life is over. And Jesus says, you're not done. My friends, God's servants are immortal until his work is done. No servant of God dies a premature death. And the same is true for you and I today. So here it is. Be a good testimony, not a perfect picture. Be a good testimony, not a perfect picture. My friends, is not his word sweet? Is not its depths too wonderful to comprehend? And may God add his blessing to his word, which is where we began with our prayer. Bless your word. Let us end our time together that as you go through this week and the rest of your life, here it is, Tharse. Say it out loud the next time you're tempted. Say it out loud next time you're broken. Tharse. Earth is short. Heaven is long. And you are immortal until he's done. Gracious Father, Your word is too much. Thank you for its truth. Bless it, Lord. Bless these people. May your name be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen.
I love you guys. You are dismissed.